City Church Podcast, your home for the latest sermons and audio updates from City Church St. Petersburg. We meet each Sunday at 10.30 a.m. at 1211 1st Avenue North on the 3rd floor. It's a good time down at Localtopia. For those of you guys who don't know, it is sort of a celebration of all things St. Pete. And people love it because it really casts the city in its best light. If you want to know what's good about St. Petersburg, go down to Localtopia and you'll find it out. I mean, it makes our city look good. It makes our city look cool. And so as we were down there, there were so many things that were uh, very St. Pete. If you had the, the most St. Pete trophy to give away, Local Topia, you, you couldn't give them out fast enough. I mean, they had, for those of you who were there, I don't know if you noticed, they had a bike ballet. <laughs> Literally, you would walk your bike up, and they would hand you a ticket, and they would valet your bicycle for you. Because St. Pete, right? Um, they had three different booths serving cotton. Now, before I moved to St. Pete, I had never heard of kava. When I use the word kava in a sentence outside of St. Petersburg, no one knows what I'm talking about, and yet you could not throw a hemp purse and not hit a kava stand. It was very, very St. Pete. And not only that, but I lost track of the number of vintage uh, women's clothing boutiques that they had there. They had one that was based out of an Airstream. They had one on a VW bus. I mean, again, all, all over the place, cool, hip, vintage stores. Localtopia is popular because it makes St. Pete look good. What's interesting is the Bible uses a word for making something look good that we don't use very much anymore. Uh, The way that the Bible uses the word glorify is the way that we think of and what was happening at Localtopia yesterday. Localtopia makes St. Pete look beautiful. Let me use it again in a different way, same sentence. Localtopia glorifies St. Pete. It's a word that glory, glorify, it's a word that's a big deal in the Bible, but it's a word that we don't use much anymore, and when we do use it, we tend to use it in a negative sense, right? When's the last time you heard the word glorify in a sentence outside of church? I would wager that it was this sentence, such and such, and such movie glorifies violence. Right? Glorifies misogyny. Glorifies something negative. Almost always, in our sort of common cultural way of speaking, the way that we use glorify is in a negative sense. That this movie makes violence look good. Well, that sounds bad. And we use this word glorify, and yet... The word glorify is significant in the Bible. It's significant for our life as Christians. Uh, One of the things that that our church, one of the parts of our church's constitution uh, is the Westminster Catechism. It's this question and answer about what we believe about God. And the first question and answer is, what is the chief end of man? What is the main goal of man? And it answers it this way. To glorify God and enjoy Him forever. That's what our life is all about. Glorifying and enjoying God. Well, first of all, we don't think of God in terms of enjoyment. 
that's for another day. But second of all, what does it mean to glorify God? You should go glorify God. Break. Go. Most of us, myself included, when I hear that statement kind of go, Right. How? How do I do that? How do I glorify God? It's interesting. We've been walking through the book of 1 Corinthians. And and for the past two or three months, with the exception of December when we, we took a break for Advent, for the past two or three months, Paul has been talking a lot about a really unique and specific thing that seems super foreign to us. Paul was talking about whether or not you could eat meat that was sacrificed to pagan gods at their temples. Is this okay? And on the one hand, for most of us, this is a complete non-issue, right? Very, very little bit of my meat comes from pagan sacrifices. I'm not exactly sure what boar's head is all about. <laughs> Maybe that sketch, uh, you know, but I doubt it, right? This is not something that we engage with. And yet, what Paul is going to do as he, as he wraps up this discussion of whether or not we can eat meat from these markets, whether or not we can go to the temple and eat at their feast, when he sort of wraps all of this up, the term that he's going to wrap it all up in, the idea that he is going to sort of make his closing argument around, is the idea of glorifying God. Because what Paul is talking about when he talks about meat sacrificed to idols has so much more to do with our lives than we care to admit. See, we like to think, oh, I don't eat meat sacrificed to idols. None of my friends do. I'm good. Let's just skip this part of the Bible and move on to something more interesting. And if we do that, we're going to miss the richness of this passage. And we're going to miss this big idea that Paul has for us. He's going to, we're going to miss the fact that our partial commitment, our half-hearted commitment to the message of Jesus keeps us from selflessly serving God and others with our whole lives. We are only a little committed to Jesus. And so, we end up being pretty selfish. I'm only halfway committed to Jesus. And so my life ends up looking pretty selfish. So let's do this. Let me read this passage to us out loud. I'd ask that you would stand as I do that. And let's hear what God has to say to us this morning. Therefore, my beloved, flee from idolatry. I speak as to sensible people. Judge for yourselves what I say. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not participation in the blood of Christ? The bread that we break, is it not participation in the body of Christ? Because there is one bread, we who are many are one body, for we all partake of the one bread. Consider the people of Israel. Are not those who eat the sacrifices participants in the altar? What do I imply then? That food offered to idols is anything? Or that an idol is anything? No. I imply that what pagans sacrifice, they offer to demons and not to God. And I do not want you to be participants with demons. You cannot drink from the cup of the Lord and the cup of demons. You cannot partake of the table of the Lord and the table of demons. Shall we provoke the Lord to jealousy? Are we stronger than He? 
All things are lawful, but not all things are helpful. All things are lawful, but not all things build up. Let no one seek his own good, but the good of his neighbor. Eat whatever is sold on the meat market without raising any question on the ground of conscience. For the earth is the Lord's and the fullness thereof. If any one of the unbelievers invites you to dinner and you are disposed to go, eat whatever is set before you without raising any question on the ground of conscience. But if someone says to you, this has been offered in sacrifice, then do not eat it for the sake of the one who informed you and for the sake of conscience. I do not mean your conscience, but his. For why should my liberty be determined by someone else's conscience? If I partake with thankfulness, why am I denounced because of that which for I which I give thanks? So, whether you eat or drink, or whatever you do, do all for the glory of God. Give no offense to Jews or to Greeks or to the church of God. Just as I try to please everyone in everything I do, not seeking my own advantage, but that of many that they might be saved. City Church, this is the Word of God written nearly 2,000 years ago and intended for us this morning. You may be seated. So on the one hand, this passage seems distant and a little bit dense, right? Paul is going to talk, Paul speaks a lot about the details of whether or not you can eat idol burgers. Whether or not you can eat food that has been sacrificed to these pagan gods. And he's making a big deal out of this. But what in the world connection does this have to us? Well, it's interesting the way he couches this discussion, the way that he approaches it. Because he starts by talking about communion. And he says, when we take communion, when we take the Lord's Supper, the the cup of wine, the bread, when we do that, something very unique is going on. The, the word that he uses that we read this morning is participation. But that word is, is a word that only captures a little bit of it. Some other translations that you may have may say fellowship. And what's going on here is Paul is saying that there is something very, very unique going on when we take communion. And then he uses a couple of other illustrations. He said, it's the same unique thing that was going on in the people of Israel when they would participate in the sacrificial system. He says that when we approach those moments, we're not just having bread, we're not just drinking wine, something more is going on. We are fully participating with one another. You see, what goes on at communion for us who are Christians is one of those special places in the world when heaven and earth, when the spiritual and the physical come crashing together. Because when we eat the bread and drink the wine, when we take communion, it's not just physical. Something real and spiritual is happening. We are participating in the fellowship of God in that moment. The the way that Paul is explaining it here uh, is probably a metaphor that he's alluding to is the metaphor of sex. Because sex is one of those other moments in our lives where the physical and the spiritual crash together and mingle. And so when Paul says this, when Paul says we have fellowship, he's talking about something more than just hanging out with one another. Something real 
spiritual, physical, and emotional is going on. Something that involves our whole selves. And Paul says, look, when we take communion, we're aligning ourselves, we're becoming one with Jesus. The same thing happened with the people of Israel. And then he sort of poses some questions. Well, so then, why are you doing the same thing with demons? Why are you so insistent on doing the same thing with these idols? And and honestly, it sort of begs a question, right? What, What was going on that people would want to do this? Why were people so insistent that they should go back to the temple and eat at the pagan sacrifices? Why why were people so excited about that? It's interesting because he kind of he answers our question. He gives us an idea of why that was. At the end of this pass the part of the passage, he says, "Are we stronger than the Lord?" You see, in the time that Paul was writing, a lot of people liked to hedge their bets. Right? A lot of people liked to say, you know what? I serve the god Apollo. Unless I'm around a temple of Athena, and then I'll serve Athena. Unless there happens to be a temple of Artemis around, then I'll go some t- do some temple of Artemis things. Why? Well... You never know which one of these is true, so let me just hedge my bets. Right? When Paul was in the town of Athens, he actually saw that the people of Athens had gone to the nth degree with this. So much so that they had a statue of every known god, and then they made one extra statue. And they said, this is the statue to whatever God we forgot about, just to be safe. Just in case we don't want to make any God mad, we've got you covered. And people would hedge their bets by worshiping multiple gods. Well, silly them. I'm glad that you and I do nothing like that. I'm glad that you and I have no problem with idolatry and always serve God only. Right? Or not. Our hearts may not be drawn to a statue of a man in a stone temple. But how many of our hearts find their value, their security, and their significance in something other than Jesus Christ? And what's interesting that was going on with the people of Corinth is that they were trying to add their idolatry to Christianity. They were trying to say, yes, I'll, I'll, I'll do my Jesus thing, but then I'll also do this other thing. How many times do we mix up our idolatry? Think, let, me, let me paint a couple of pictures for you. If I could just get more money, I could give more of that money to Jesus, and everything would be fine. 
sometimes, if that's your attitude, what you really love is money and you're just using Jesus as the toppings. You're just using Jesus as the add-on. God, if you would give me well-behaved children who never pitch fit at anyone's houses and who are always well-behaved in school, then all of their teachers would come to know Jesus and it would be great. So Jesus, why don't you give me fantastic children? What do I really want? I really want easy life as a parent, but I'm going to sprinkle some Jesus over that. This is where I trip up. If people think I'm cool, if people think I'm the cool pastor, then they'll think Jesus is cool. And then they'll come to know Jesus. Do you know what I'm really concerned with when I think that? I'm really concerned with me. I'm really concerned with myself. What I'm really doing is adding idolatry to my Christianity. I'm trying to make it stronger by putting my idols into it. Which begs the question, where is that part of your life? Where is the part of your life where you're going, Jesus, bless this thing that I really actually just want for myself. Bless this thing that I find my value, my security, my significance in. That's idolatry in my life. And it's idolatry in yours. And it's interesting because Paul says that this is the sort of thing that stirs up the jealousy and wrath of God. When we are finding our security in anything other than the security that Jesus gives us. When we are finding our significance in anything other than being a child of God. When we are finding our riches not in the riches that we find at the feet of Jesus, but rather in the riches of this world. These are the sort of things that stir up God's jealousy and wrath. You see, what most of us experience is half-heartedness. I want Jesus... But I also want these other things. You ask me anything about Jesus, I'll, I'll give you the right answers. And Jesus totally has half my heart. Ask anybody in a relationship how well that would work out. Honey, I love you with half my heart. If I went home and said that tonight, I would be making some phone calls and asking for a couch from one of you guys. Hey, can I come crash at your place tonight? And yet, how many of us, if we were being honest, would say to God, I love you with half my heart? It's most of us, if we're honest would say that. But what Paul says is that no, we need to leave behind this idolatry, we need to leave behind this half-heartedness and begin to serve others. He goes on to talk about the way that, look, the, the way that you should think about all of these questions on whether or not to eat the meat sacrificed to these idols, whether or not you should have Zeus steaks should be answered by this question, are you Serving others. Are you serving others? 
You see, he kind of has a question and answer going back and forth there where he says, look, some of you are telling me all things are lawful. And you're right, but not everything is helpful. All things are lawful. That's right, but not everything builds up. The common thing that Paul's answers have as we walk through this text is he's constantly telling us to look up from yourself and look around at how you can serve others. Look around at the ways that you can be of service to the people around you. It's not license. You can't do anything you want. You have to serve others. It's not legalism. You can do anything in serving others. What's interesting is that we as a culture uh, have replaced serving with something else. We've replaced serving others with pleasing people, haven't we? Think about all the ways that people-pleasing runs our life. Think about all the ways that people-pleasing drives our interactions on social media. Ooh, that person posted about this issue. I better click like, that way I'm not in the uncool crowd that doesn't like this issue. Ah, I better take that photo down because people won't like it. I better fill in the blank. You see, all of us struggle with people-pleasing. And here's the thing about people-pleasing. We like it and we struggle with it because it gives us power. If I do the right things and make you happy, guess what? You'll like me and I'll feel good. If you're my friend and I give you the right gifts, you'll like me and I'll feel good. If I please my boss and do all the right things so that my boss likes me, guess what? I might get a promotion or a raise and guess what I'll feel? Good. What's the torture of people pleasing now? If I don't do enough, if I don't get you the gift that I want, if I don't perform for my boss the way that I want, how do I feel? Bad. And I don't want to feel bad. So what do we do? We walk around constantly worried. Am I going to please this person? Is this going to be enough? Is this person going to like me? Is the boss going to think I'm doing a good job? What if I get evaluated? Is everything going to be okay? What will my friends think if I do this? And we are absolutely struck by pleasing people. But if you read this passage, that's not what Paul is talking about. As you look through this passage, what he's talking about is serving others at the cost of your own rights. Serving others always requires sacrifice and always makes someone else or something else look beautiful. Paul says, look, if you're at somebody's house and they serve you a meal and they whisper in your ear, oh, by the way, this piece of steak was totally sacrificed to the god Artemis. Don't eat the steak. Why? Because that person told you because they're trying to protect you. They think, oh, this is a Christian. They can't possibly eat this steak sacrificed to Artemis. And guess what Paul tells you to do? Give up your right to that stake. That's tough. Why? Well, 
at least personally, I like steak. Right? I like the things that I, I want to do the things that I want to do. And God says, no, here's what I want you to do. I want you to sacrifice, to give up your rights, to give up the things that you want to do in order to serve others. And most of us hear that and go, Maybe something. Like, I guess I'd eat at a vegan's house. I guess. I guess. I guess I'd go to that party with people that I don't think are the coolest people, even though it might hurt my social stock. I guess I'll hang out with people who are different than me, even though it's hard and requires sacrifice. You see, it always requires sacrifice, but it always makes someone else look beautiful and good. People-pleasing always makes me look good. Serving others always makes others and God look good. And that's what Paul tells us we really need to be doing. Not going, how can I please someone else? But how can I serve someone else so that God looks beautiful. And the only way that that happens is when we are sacrificially serving others. Which is interesting because it echoes something else in the Bible, doesn't it? Isn't this all a great big picture of Jesus? Wasn't he the one who was faithful, was wholeheartedly obedient to God? even to the point of death. Wasn't He willing to sacrifice and serve us to the point of being killed on a cross? You see, Jesus takes all of our half-heartedness and serves us by dying for our half-heartedness. He takes all of our people-pleasing and He nails it to the cross. He pays for it with His blood. And here's the thing. That self-sacrifice, that serving of people who didn't deserve it, who were in a much lower station than Him, is life-changingly beautiful. The sacrifice of Jesus is absolutely life-changingly beautiful. It absolutely glorifies God. So if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, one way to think about this is, where have you seen true beauty? Where have you seen beauty that makes you stop, that stops you in your tracks and says, that is beauty? I would suggest to you that that's the kind of beauty we see here in this picture of Jesus. Service and self-sacrifice wholeheartedly for the good of others. Now maybe you are here this morning you are a Christian. The call of this text is for you and I to repent, to turn away, to ask for forgiveness for all the ways that we have been people pleasers and not servants, for all the ways that we have been half-hearted and not wholehearted. 
and trust in the beauty, truth, and goodness of Jesus. Because when we begin to see all the ways that we are half-hearted, and we begin to bring our half-heartedness to God and say, God, I, I don't even know where to start. I don't even know how to do this. God, I am constantly plagued by half-heartedness, and I know that you freely offer me forgiveness. What he begins to do is forgive us and change us with the beauty of his self-sacrifice. May we be the people here at City Church who are changed by that beauty this week. Let's pray.